The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Lisa Pressman. In today's episode, I'm speaking with mediatrician Dr. Michael Rich. He combines his media knowledge and medical expertise as a pediatrician to help parents understand the science of what happens between a growing child and the ever-evolving digital ecosystem. His new book, The Mediatrician's Guide, A Joyful Approach to Raising Healthy, Smart, Kind Kids in a Screen-Saturated World, is out now. And one thing that we're talking about is understanding that screens are here. Technology is here. So rather than just decide it's evil or it's good, let's work with what we know and help our kids developmentally with the skills they need to navigate this complex world. Dr. Rich is the founder and director of the Digital Wellness Lab. It's the first evidence-based medical program that addresses the physical, mental, and social health issues associated with digital technology. And um, so let's see, I will put a link in the show notes to the Digital Wellness Lab at Boston Children's Hospital. We will keep this conversation going. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to DM me on Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast. And of course, write a little review in Apple Podcasts, give it a five-star rating. We're going to continue this conversation. This is certainly not a one and done, but I think it's a really good start for those of you who are thinking about navigating social media, video games, gaming, screen behaviors in general, and cultivating a healthy relationship with your kids. Being a filmmaker for 12 years and then being a pediatrician who has worked with children, adolescents, and their families for over 30 years, particularly around the issue of the way we are affected by the screens we use and how we use them in positive and negative ways, I felt it was really important to take what is has always been really, and now at a fever pitch, is a very polarized, almost adversarial environment where Either you're for kids or you're for screens, but you can't be for both. And as a practical person, I focus on how do we live well and live to be well in the environment we've got. That doesn't mean we can't try to improve tech, we can't improve social media, but it really means that we need to raise our kids right now. We can't spend years trying to make social media better. They're going to be growing up anyway. So it's really about developing the skills to recognize the positives, keep alert for the negatives, and actually raise our kids to be as healthy, smart, and kind as they can be and realize their dreams and our own dreams for them rather than to try to fight against it in one way or the other. Yeah, I actually was going to ask what you thought of some of the recent policies. Like, I know, I think it was this weekend, the New York City mayor said that social media was a public health risk. And I'm curious not to sidetrack too much, but to use that as an example of how we can both 
you know, make things better and also recognize reality. Yes, that was actually the public health commissioner of New York City who said that. And in many ways, he's right. This is a threat to health if we don't use it mindfully, right? But the reality is that social media are not going to go away. They may be restricted, they may morph, they may change, but they're not going to go away. And what I've experienced time and time again with young people is that most do okay. And it is those who don't use it in effective or mindful or directed ways who can kind of go down the rabbit hole and get into trouble. So it's not that social media are doing something to us so much as what we're doing with social media that can get us into trouble. And I think one of the big problems we're wrestling with here is that people want a binary, simple solution to complex and nuanced questions. Right. And given that, I mean, so part of it, and we'll talk about this, part of it is bolstering these skills that can help kids respond best to screens and manage things as they get older in a more responsible way. And also, let's start early. Like, what are you seeing from the out of the gate? Well, out of the gate, I'm seeing what I think virtually everyone is seeing, which is as soon as an infant can move their fingers, parents pull out the iPad and show off to people how smart their baby is because they can touch the picture of the cow and make it go moo. The interesting thing of here, of course, is that any baby can do that. That doesn't prove how smart the baby is. It proves how smart Steve Jobs was to create this completely transparent, if you will, interface between the mind, the eye, the finger, and and the image on a screen. And so I think that we have to take a step back and understand that, first of all, these are incredibly powerful tools. The smartphone in kids' pockets is more than a million times more powerful than the computer that landed us on the moon. And 99.9% of it is distraction, entertainment, and and ways not to do what they're, for example, in school to do, which is to learn. And so I think that we have to take a step back and really look at these power tools for what they are and to recognize that they are not toys to be given as a reward for good behavior or taken away for bad behavior, but they are tools that we should share with our children when they need the tool, when they can handle it responsibly and with respect for themselves and others. And that respect entails knowing what the potential outcomes can be. And so one of the things that I say to parents is the best thing to to remember is the three M's. The first is model. Model the behavior with your devices that you want to see in your kids. So don't be reading that all-important email from your boss while wagging your finger at your kid saying, turn off Grand Theft Auto. To them, that's the height of hypocrisy. Right, right. They listen to 1% of what we say and 100% of what we do. Number two is when they are ready and you believe they are ready for that tool, that device, that application, that platform, sit down next to them the way you will when they learn to drive a car, another powerful tool, and discover it with them, mentor them, 
That's the second M. And a mentor not only teaches, but learns from the student. And they will be incredibly facile with the technological piece. You're bringing in judgment, the executive functions of impulse control, et cetera. But make it a shared space from the beginning, that digital space that they live in more hours than they live in physical space, actually, in conscious ways. And let's be part of their lives. Let's parent them in the digital space. And when you introduce that tool, you say, here's what it can be used for. Here's when, where, and how to use it. And explicitly, here's what it's not to be used for. Here are the things you may come across. Here's what to do when you come across those things. And finally, before they have the device, what they think the consequences should be if they get in trouble. So they have ownership of their behavior. Right. And we know that the choice is important for their sense of autonomy and their capacity to follow the rules. Absolutely. But if the rules are made with them as opposed to for them from on high, and in reality, it is much easier to have your mom mad at you than to have her disappointed in you. Um, and that's a huge difference. And it's about sharing the responsibility both ways. And kids actually respond to that very well. Now, the third is the one that both parents and kids push back the hardest against on the, at the get-go, and that is monitor. Have your kids usernames and passwords to their devices, to their platforms. Why would we do that? Parents say, I don't have the time to monitor everything my kid does. Kids say, I don't want my parents in my business. And you don't have to monitor them all the time. But if you can, they behave differently. They behave in better ways, much the way employees who have random drug tests in the workplace will behave differently because they know they can be checked on. And when you introduce it that way, the young people then feel that they can come back to their parents when they come across something that is upsetting or where they know they shouldn't be, rather than feeling, oh my God, I've got to hide this. I've got to go underground. Okay. I started eating Magic Spoon cereal well before they were advertisers. Like I just ordered all the different flavors because I don't know, I have an Achilles heel for sugared cereal, but I definitely don't eat it because I am a grown woman who knows not to do that. But Magic Spoon makes delicious varieties of gluten-free, soy-free, high in protein, zero sugar, tasty, delicious snacks for breakfast. They have a variety pack, which has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And I am just going to say that my inner child is brought out by the fruity and the frosted, except again, there's no sugar in it. There's 13 to 14 grams of protein and only four to five grams of net carbs per serving. There's no dyes. There's no garbage. It's just yummy. So go to magicspoon.com slash humans to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use the promo code humans at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it, just get your money back. 
Try a delicious bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash humans and use the code humans to save $5. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for co-sponsoring this episode. Okay, so little ones soak in all their surroundings, from silly faces, the sounds, and skincare, the ingredients on their body. So the founder of Primally Pure is a mom. She created Primally Pure baby products to pamper babies in every way possible with cold-pressed oils. But these multi-purpose products aren't only for newborns or a growing belly for that matter, which it's also good for. From baby eczema to adult dermatitis, Primally Pure's baby line is powerfully calming to inflammatory conditions. I got the nicest package from them with the most gorgeous products. And I've been using the Primarily Pure's Baby Balm, which is a customer favorite. And I just kind of wanted to try it. And I've been using it totally not the way you're supposed to on my heels. And they are baby soft. I'm not kidding. So Primarily Pure is fully non-toxic, offering skincare, body care, and baby products. And it's totally female founded. So to read real life stories from parents who have experienced life-changing relief from Primarily Pure's baby products, visit primallypure.com slash humans and use the code humans for 15% off your Primally Pure purchase. That's www.primallypure.com slash humans and use the code humans at checkout for 15% off. What are the specific skills that we can start to talk about with parents before they get their hands on devices more than, you know, shared television watching or whatever you're seeing in the earlier years. And then separately, can you talk about when parents say, well, the genie's out of the bottle, like now what? Because I think that's another one of those things where you hear this and you think, well, it's too late now. And we sort of give up. And I think if you could speak directly to parents on how to problem solve there, it would be super helpful. Well, there are about five questions embedded in what you just said. I know. <laughs> let, Enjoy. Let, let me take it. <laughs> let me let me try to take it from the top. First of all, when I'm asked when kids should be taught or develop media literacy or digital literacy, I say it's when they begin using media or digital tools. Now, let's say, well, a baby can't do that. Well, yes, you can because if you are sharing something with your baby or your infant or your toddler, you use it with them. You are modeling for them how to use it. You are observing them and seeing what their attention span is and turning it off when they lose their you know attention, when it drifts to something else. In fact, an interesting rule of thumb for attention is two times the years of age they are is the number of minutes that a typical attention span is. And what a lot of screen stuff does is keeps re-grabbing their attention rather than holding their attention. So we have to make it consistent with what they can manage. Now, the age issue, I am completely with you on that. I mean, even as well-intentioned things as age-appropriate design have two problems in that nomenclature. First of all, age. Every two-year-old is not the same. Every 13-year-old is not the same, et cetera. Not only that, but appropriateness varies by region, quite frankly. Different parts of the country, different things are appropriate. 
What we talk about is developmentally optimal. In other words, what age and stage they are, what they are capable of handling, not only applies to the variation of so-called neurotypical kids, but also can be applied to the neurodiverse kids in our community. And so we aren't, you know, isolating them off in a different group that they can't handle it. We need to look at the developmental stage of the kids and provide them with what they can manage. In fact, one of the groups that can get in trouble with kind of going down the rabbit hole of interactive media online is kids who are on the autistic spectrum. So I have issues with both age and appropriate in that nomenclature because it isn't really a measurable thing. It's, it's again, a set of values that people are judging against. And what was the third part of that question? <laughs> the third part of that question is how do we get the genie back in the bottle? If you, if oh, we feel yes. like, okay, I misunderstood my skill, my, I wasn't looking at skills. I was looking at, at you know, calendar age, or I was looking at what right. the peer group is doing. And I just right. now feel like I made a mistake. Well, first of all, lose the guilt, right? We are involved in a massive social experiment, Right. We are a work in progress. We will always be a work in progress. We will never be perfect, but that doesn't mean we can't keep perfecting it, right? So let's not worry about what happened in the past. I mean, and we've had time and again issues where the so-called genie was out of the bottle. When I was a kid, we rode bikes without helmets. Now, do we let our kids ride bikes without helmets? When I was a kid, there weren't seatbelts in every car. And on and on and on. We have learned as we've gone and we've changed behavior and we have improved our health and reduced our risk with various decisions that we've made. So what's happened in the past is in the past. That doesn't mean we can't look forward and do things better all the time. We waste an immense amount of psychological energy on guilt that could be applied to actually nurturing our kids in healthier and healthier ways. But I think that just saying, oh, it's all done, it's sort of like someone who says, I can't, I, I, there's no point in quitting smoking now because I've been smoking for two years. Well, there is a point. We can always get better. So given that, because obviously I totally agree with you, can you give us some examples that you've seen where, where and how parents have been able to articulate that in a way that feels like they're collaborating with their kids and it doesn't feel as much like, an authoritarian. I've, I just heard a podcast. This is a disaster. I've made a mistake. We're taking it all. And that's the end of it. Sure. I, I have parents who come in and say, my kid's playing Grand Theft Auto or Call of Duty all the time, and I can't stand it. And the more I yell at him, the more he does it. And I say, here's what you got to do. You First of all, stop being the police and start supporting their success. Catch your child doing good as much or more than you catch them doing badly. And when it comes to the video games, I want you to sit down right next to him and say, teach me, teach me how to play Call of Duty. Teach me how to play Grand Theft Auto. And the parents just like freeze up like deer in the headlights. And I said, what you are doing when you do that is you're saying, I love you. I respect you. I want to understand what engages you here. And then when you finally figure out the 47 different moves it takes to steal a car <laughs> and you have been the student to your child 
and you turn to them and say, okay, I finally figured out how to do this. Let's talk a little bit about why you might want to practice this over and over and over again. And you're coming from a very different place than when you're at the top of the basement stairs, wagging your finger and yelling. You're coming from a place that says, okay, I get it. I get it. You'll always be better than me at this game. Let's talk about why you might want to do it over and over again and rehearse it over and over again and whether there might be other games that you might enjoy just as much that are rehearsing things that will help you and will make you feel better. Okay, so there have been a lot of holidays. We last had Valentine's Day. Maybe you didn't get exactly what you wanted. Maybe you did. Maybe you think it's a ridiculous holiday. But here's the thing. You can do a whole self-love thing for the holiday. And now through Monday, February 26th, it's Dime Beauty's Valentine sale. So you can finally get the gift you want, or maybe you're running low on your skincare staples and you want to stock up. Now's the time because it's 25% off. And Dime Beauty, let me be clear, is clean, high-end skincare that is actually affordable. And it really works. Dime doesn't sacrifice performance just to make it clean either. And clean means like 100% transparent about every single ingredient they use. So you can use their products daily with confidence. The work system is everything I need, which includes a gentle cleanser, a toner, two incredible serums, and two luxurious moisturizers. I have such dry skin, I cannot tell you. I need to slather it all on, but also I don't want to be greasy. This is so good. So love your skin again. Go to Dime Beauty co.com now until Monday, February 26th for 25% off. And you can stock up on all these staples or try something new. Now is the perfect time because this kind of discount is really big and will expire. So go to dimebeautyco.com for 25% off during the Valentine's sale. That's dimebeautyco.com. A lot of people make New Year's resolutions to drink more water and stay healthier. I am definitely one of those people. Here's a cool thing. You can not just drink more water, but upgrade your drinking water. So yes, you probably trust your water filter pitcher to make tap safe to drink. But do you know if it's really doing anything? Because it turns out most filters can't remove gross contaminants like bacteria, parasites, PFAS, and microplastics. But Life Straw Home Kitchen is an upgrade you will be so excited about. It's the only water pitcher that filters out over 30 contaminants, including bacteria, microplastics, and PFAS. And it makes your water actually taste better. I'm not kidding. I'm not a water person. I admit it. I really just always need a little bit of help to drink my water. And also it's just a really pretty sleek hand-blown glass design. And I like things to look pretty too. Most importantly, LifeStraw fights for the planet and gives back. So for every pitcher sold, a child in need receives one year of safe water. So they have helped over 9 million children to date. Better filtration, better taste, better design. LifeStraw home products can be found at LifeStraw.com and on Amazon. Better filtration, better taste, better design. LifeStraw home products can be found at LifeStraw.com and on Amazon. So on the subject of games, because I think there's so much under the umbrella of of media and screens, but on the subject of games, what are some of the signs that things have gone 
into a place that feels off the rails? And what are some things that are just expected that we maybe just don't understand because it's not part of the culture we grew up with? Oh, yes. How do we avoid this becoming rock and roll to this generation, right? Which exactly even more because mom and dad don't get it. Mom and dad hate it. And so it's mine, right? It's my identity. I think we take it back to the basics. And I, I don't restrict this just to games, but I actually look at all of interactive media as on a, you know, a spectrum of behaviors that are not problematic in and of themselves. In other words, it's not that the game is doing something to the young person, but the interactivity is what hooks them in and keeps hooking them in. So we actually talk about problematic interactive media use. There have been over a hundred different names applied to various aspects of it, whether it's social media abuse or gaming disorder or internet addiction these are all words that actually are both inaccurate and often quite blaming and shaming. And we have found that the commonality here is the interactivity that does it. When that interactive media use, whether it be games or social media or what we call information binging, which is the endless Reddit, Quora, YouTube videos, when it interferes with their lives in the sense that they're staying up late at night and not getting enough sleep. They are not getting up for school in the morning. They're not doing their homework and they're failing in school. They are withdrawing and isolating themselves from friends and family. Those are the signs that it has become problematic. It has begun to impair their lives. And so it really is staying in touch with your kids and keeping an eye on them much the way you would observe them with about substance use or about getting you know, being bullied at school. It's about keeping communication going. And one of the most important things to protect them is a sit-down family meal every day with no devices. No devices for mom and dad, no televisions in the next room, no other stuff going on. This is not only where you nourish their bodies, but where you nourish and reflect and refresh their minds. This is where we let our hair down and share the goods, the bads, and the indifference of the day with each other. And we reconnect as a family. So it's the single most important thing you can do, not just for their nutrition, but for their mental health. And that's where you'll start to observe the issues. There are also issues like when you ask them to stop and they flip out. Right? that you know they they just have have to finish and one of the reasons that i say stop policing your child is because when you do that when you say it's time to stop now it's the end of the time you are actually starting the conflict and the conflict will always happen if they are in the middle of something the middle of a game middle of a program whatever it is they're watching so Again, it's about building in a schedule to the day that the young person expects and that they can anticipate. So, for example, if a kid is a big gamer, find out what game he is playing at the moment or typically plays and find out what the game cycle is. These games all have cycles of 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, where you come to the end of something and you level up or you 
can have to go back and do this level again. Ask the kid if you can give them a heads up for when that much time is left in the time they are going to be gaming. Say it's a 20-minute cycle. So mom or dad comes by at 20 minutes of and say, okay, 20 minutes ago, don't start a new game. So they can get to the end of the game they're in or the program they're in and close it down on their own rather than playing right up until the last second and then being stopped cold, which always ends up in a conflict. Right. And I think when we know that this protective factor of having a close connected relationship with your primary or, you know, a an adult in your life, how important that relationship is, if that relationship is spent in conflict over screens, which is so often the case, especially as we emerge into adolescence, I think reminding parents how valuable that is. Like you said, even just having that time at dinner, not diving in with like, stop this. But I say this, and I wouldn't mind if you shared with everyone statistics on what is typical from, you know, early childhood through adolescence in terms of time spent and what we see. I ask this because I think sometimes parents don't know what is happening with other kids and other households on average. Mm -hmm. And it's not that, you know, numbers are super meaningful out of context, but I think it just helps like normalize what can feel like this is the center of the universe or not. So first of all, if we're talking about adolescence, we have to recognize that adolescence is a time of intense change, a time when they are physically growing in the second most rapid growth spurt of their life, other than immediately after birth, where their bodies are changing and maturing, where their brains are changing and maturing. There's a lot of changes going on in this period of life. But there are also things that need to be stabilized that need to happen. They need to get enough sleep. They only grow when they're asleep. They only secrete human growth hormone when they're asleep. And that's because you don't want to fight gravity to get taller. So it's it's a natural thing. That, and this is the one thing that suffers perhaps the most with their sort of uncontrolled or open-ended screen use. They need to eat and they need to socialize. They need to do a number of things. So what I actually tell parents to do is, first of all, to say screen time limits are obsolete. Why is that? Because we live in environments that have screens all over the place. They're on virtually every wall. They are on our wrists. They are in our pockets. So if we can't measure screen time, which we can't, anymore because we don't use screens the way we did in the days of broadcast television where you turned on a program, you watched it, and you turned it off when the program was over. We move in and out of these environments all the time. So instead of having screen time limits, which quite frankly, even in the days of television did not work because it created the forbidden fruit and if the kids were limited to one hour of screens, they would spend that one hour immediately after getting home from school. And at the end of the hour, what would happen? Absolutely nothing. So in an hour and 15 minutes, an hour and 20 minutes, mom or dad comes up and says, hey, you've got homework to do. Oh, can I finish this program? Can I level up in the game? 
And it became a conflict every time. So what we talk about now is having minimal non-screen time. In other words, it's not that the screen is something toxic, doing something to you so much as what it's displacing. Exactly. Yep. Strenuous physical exercise, reading, talking with family, playing board games, doing all the things that comprise a rich life. And that's what we owe our kids ultimately is a rich and diverse menu of experience, right? Which can include screens, but is not, you know, something that, you know, is, can be taken over by screens. And one of the, one of the issues we struggle with, with the tech and entertainment companies is that their drive is always to maximize the amount of time. And what that does is it crowds out things like talking to your mom. And one of my favorites is we've got to bring back boredom. Yeah, here, here. Kids are not capable of being bored anymore because they have screens in their pockets. We And we're all guilty of it. We get I was going to say, we're all kind of guilty. Absolutely. We get on an elevator and we look at our screens rather than at each other. I walked out of the hospital a few months back at the end of a really hard day, turned toward my parking lot, which is to the west, and there was a brilliant, brilliant sunset. And I was completely rejuvenated by looking at the sunset. And then I looked at everybody on the street and they were all staring at their phones. We lose touch with each other. We lose touch with Mother Earth. And I think a lot is lost there. A lot is lost. And we have to recognize that boredom is where creativity and imagination happen, not just because we create that space, but because it's a little uncomfortable. And we need to fill that space with what shape is that cloud making? Or, you know, what is that sound I'm hearing? And, and imagine things. So I think that it's really, really important for us to recognize that these screens are incredibly useful, powerful tools and incredibly seductive devices that allow us to go anywhere, anytime, and connect with anybody. But Ultimately, that near-infinite connectivity actually erodes and undermines our deep and sustained connectedness with each other in the deep and meaningful ways that we're connected with those whom we love. This episode is brought to you in part by IQ Bar. I love a bar. I'm not going to lie because there are just days when I'm in a rush and I want a protein bar that has a quick brain boosting punch. You know what I mean? And I was very excited to find out that IQ bar is solving the problem that a lot of energy bars are kind of gross and bad for you and have lots of chemicals in them. And my mornings are rushed. I don't have the sit down, beautiful breakfast I used to have with my children and starting each day with IQ bars, brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes and mushroom coffees. I mean, the sampler pack gives you all of it so you can see what you feel most comfortable with. But IQ bar products are entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, GMOs, and importantly, artificial sweeteners. And so without any sugar or sweeteners in the drinks, and a little bit of a feeling of coffee without the chitteries, you've got a great option here. Refuel smarter with IQ Bar's ultimate sampler pack. That's seven IQ Bars, four IQ Mix Sticks, and four IQ Joe Sticks. 
And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ Bar products, plus get free shipping. To get 20% off, just text HUMANS to 64000. Get your discount, text HUMANS to 64000. That's HUMANS to 64000. Note that message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. Keepsake is the easiest way for parents to capture and preserve memories about little ones and growing kids. I was so excited when I tried Keepsake. Kind of wish I had had it when I had little ones. Keepsake sends daily text prompts and thoughtful questions so you never miss a memory in the making. Your text responses and photo are stored in the app with easy access as a digital journal. And then of course, it's so gorgeous. They can send you a book of your digital journal and voila, memories made and such a good present too. And it's never too late to start documenting. It works great for new moms, toddlers, early school age, and as kids continue to grow and start new activities, sports, vacations, birthdays, the big stuff, but also the little stuff. There's always going to be amazing moments that you can look back on and think, how can I keep a great record? Okay. So Keepsake is so super cool. You get your first week completely free when you sign up and it's just so darn cute. I like put a whole thing about my book launch just to have that whole memory because I was also thinking about other ways that I want to have Keepsake as part of my life. Keepsake is spelled with a Q because of the questions it asks you to build out your journal. Go to keepsake.com and redeem 20% off your annual subscription with the code humans. Remember that's keepsake with a Q, Q Q-E-E-P-S-A-K-E. As of late, some schools, one of my daughter's schools included, has said that the lower school schoolers and middle schoolers are not allowed to have their devices at school. And if they bring them to school, they can turn them into the office until the end of the day. And I personally loved that because it is not lost on me that the kids, even when they're sitting in a classroom, are kind of like there is this call to their device that even if it's not out, it's just there. Because I know for myself. But in this particular case, what I thought was so interesting was, yes, I loved that. And also parents were really annoyed because they then couldn't reach their kids. And we've all kind of lost the plot on like how to function without those conveniences. And so it really has been a failed rule because nobody is actually modeling for the kids that this even needs to be a rule to follow. I mean, it's a rule. It's not an expectation. (laughs) So I was curious what you think, because I think that's happening more and more. And how much of this is we need to let go of the, you know, like accept some of the inconvenience of having a bored kid or having trouble reaching our kids for organizing after school and how much of it is that's not a realistic way to prevent overexposure to screens? Well, I think we have to go back to first principles, which is what is the task at hand when you're at school, right? And does this tool support that that task or does it distract from that task? France has banned phones from schools for years and actually their outcomes are not that bad. They're actually much better, believe it or not. And I I think there are a couple of things at work here. First of all, having no phones is 
much better for leveling the playing field in terms of one's affluence, in terms of one's you know capabilities. But I think more importantly is that we have to recognize that those phones, particularly smartphones, but really all phones, are about 99.9% distraction. They are not used for school work. And here's the part that annoys or worries the parents the most, which is I can't be in touch with my child, as you suggested. Well, a generation ago, when they were in school, their parents couldn't get in touch with them, right? They did fine without it. And here's what I worry about, even more than the distraction from the didactic learning, is that when you have a smartphone with mom on it calling up and saying, how did you do on that test? Or is that kid still picking on you in the playground? You're never getting the social emotional learning of being an individual in a society that you are forming and you are learning to get along. You're learning what to do, what not to do. And you learn from experience, not from mom being in your head 24-7. And so I think there's a huge loss, not just in didactic learning, but in the social-emotional learning that occurs when you are forging your way in a society of your own. So what are the things, I guess that naturally leads into from a policy perspective, which is outside of the scope of this conversation, but curious, where are we headed? You know, when you hear things about banning these things at school or shifting the status of what we're saying about social media or any of the things that where I think the adults are desperately trying to figure out a way to reduce or minimize the harm and and bolster the positive of the the screens that we have access to. But I think it does feel a little bit like we're grasping at straws and don't exactly know. So where would you, where do you stand with all of this? Well, I think the answer lies in science, not in policy. I think when you create policies, they are forced to be one size fits all and tend not to work and also tend to set people up for workarounds. I mean, look at the number of parents who either lie for their kids or encourage their kids to lie to get onto social media before they're 13. It's a great um, example. You know, sort of the rules are good for everybody else, but not for me or my kid, because my kid is, you know, smarter, faster, and better looking than other kids. And so, you know, and this is, you know, my training and my tendency is let's think about this in a holistic way. And let's think about what we can learn about what happens when one or the other outcome occurs. And let's learn from the mistakes. So I think that predicting where we're going is, is sort of like, you know, saying, well, everybody's going to behave the same way. I think that, you know, you think, actually, you think that things are tough now with smartphones. Wait till Gen AI is part of school. Wait till, you know, these kids are going to be in a situation where they can write their paper or have it written for them by AI. Already schools are saying, oh my God, how are we going to defend against this? And how are we going to figure out who's cheating and who's not? Is that we have to take a step back and say, what is the goal of this exercise? What is the goal of school? If the goal is simply to get a good enough score to get to the next level of school, then Gen AI is going to do a great job of getting you a solid B across the board. 
But if the role of or the goal of school is to come out thinking in innovative, creative ways, then Gen AI is actually going to stall us, is actually going to hurt us. We already have kids who have a hard time with reflective thinking because they don't feel they need to learn the building blocks. They don't think they need to understand photosynthesis or no poetry or to, you know, understand a scientific concept because they can Google all of those things, but they don't have the basic building blocks to think the new. And so what we are potentially going to do is if we take the path of least resistance is just have our devices and our gen AI think for us. And we're going to come out of the other end of school and we won't know anything. We won't be able to think we won't have the skills. And so I think, and I'm always the optimist. I think that what's going to happen if we do this right is that instead of teachers being those who test you and create the hurdles you have to jump over to get to the next level of school or the better school, et cetera, is that because that can all be circumvented, that can all be arranged by Gen AI, but that students will start to say, I want to do the work. I want you to make me do the work. I want you to teach me so that I actually can think for myself. I want to take the path of greater resistance because I know that resistance builds strength. And part of it is we can go back to the fundamentals of human development and lean on the same skills and tools that we would for, like you said, everything else that's come our way. But then there's this existential kind of what is all of this and what does it mean that we probably need to reflect on ourselves and and learn a little bit about and pay attention to our own relationship with all of these devices, which is rapidly changing. I mean, here's the thing, is that the basics of parenting have not changed. How we guide our children, how we, you know, what we hope for them, what we have goals for have not changed. What's changed is the environment in which it's taking place. So we, we're not unprepared. We can still do this. We just have to understand the environment in which it's taking place. And you're absolutely right. You're still reading. You're not playing video games. You're still reading. It's not the device that changes it. It's what you do with it that changes it. And, and so I think we have to take a step back and not get so freaked out about this device or this platform is doing something to me, but what am I doing with it that matters? And I'll say that instead of developing killer apps, which was all what everybody was all about in the early stages of the tech revolution, we should be developing what I call our killer bees. The killer bees are be balanced in our screen and non-screen use. Be mindful in using screens for what they do well, but also turning them off when they're not the best tool for the job and maybe just sitting and thinking is. And finally, and most importantly, particularly for parents with kids, be present. We are not present when we're staring at a screen. We are not there with each other. So when our kids are around, the best thing we can do is turn them off put them face down and look at our child and listen to our child, or maybe just sit in silence with our child and enjoy being together. 
Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.